Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Jim Crane, an energy research fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute in Houston, Texas. Jim, who worked for many years as a journalist based in Iraq and Dubai, is the author of several books, among them Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf, published by Columbia University Press. He recently co-authored a paper for the Baker Institute titled The OPEC Plus Phenomenon of Saudi-Russian Cooperation and Implications for U.S.-Saudi Relations. You can find it on the bakerinstitute.org website, and it's the focus of our conversation today. Jim, great to have you back in the podcast. Oh, thanks, Bill. Great to be back. Yeah, can we begin by talking about shale oil production in the U.S., how it's affected the market, and how, amongst other things, it brought Russia and Saudi Arabia together, and how Russia, in fact, became the big plus in OPEC Plus back in 2016. Oh, yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, the shale phenomenon started here in the United States, right here in Texas, where I am. Uh, so I'm in Houston. It started up in uh, uh, North Texas uh, in the Barnett Shale outside Fort Worth uh, in the early 2000s, right? And it started in natural gas. Uh, if you remember, shale gas was the, you know, the big buzzword. Um, so by 2010 or 2011, the shale boom uh, had bled uh, from gas into oil and really, really took off and kind of turned the oil sector here in the U.S. into kind of like a manufacturing business. I mean, we knew where the shale was. I mean, geologists already knew this. Uh, and so you had these kind of these oil wells that, that, that folks were drilling that, um, you know, they'd bring a big burst of production in the first couple of months and then the, the, the production would tail off uh, fairly quickly. So you need to kind of keep drilling and fracking over and over and over to keep the oil flowing. There wasn't any more exploration uh, for oil. There wasn't any more risk uh, in finding the oil. You just had to keep the investment up uh, and to, to keep the oil flow steady. So it really took a lot of the risk out of the oil business. You know, you had U.S. majors overseas and then even some foreign companies selling off assets in riskier parts of the world uh, and coming back to the U.S., and this brought just a huge surge in oil production in the United States. So we were producing here about six or seven million barrels a day uh, in the early 2000s. That jumped up really quickly and reached all the way up to 13 million barrels a day uh, by 2021. So that's the most oil that any country has ever produced, ever. Thir 13 million. I think the highest the Saudis have ever gotten was, you know, 12.4 uh, in 2020. So, you know, OPEC, of course, watching all this, um, you know, at first, you know, dismissing it as a flash in the pan, uh, but increasingly over the years becoming alarmed, right? Uh, so, you know, shale was basically stealing their market share. Shale captured um, almost 5 million barrels a day by our count of OPEC's market share, Right. So it wasn't that OPEC was necessarily losing market share. The oil market was growing. You know, you had Chinese demand especially growing. But that was being, uh, you know, they weren't capturing the growth. They were holding their their production steady. And, you know, a lot. And, and actually, they were actually cutting production uh, at times to prop up prices. And every time OPEC did that, U.S. shale would swoop in and grab more market share. Right. So there's this ultimate free rider. You've got 
you know, the U.S. shale patch, you know, you've got something like 6,000 companies and none of them take any signals from the government, right, from the U.S. government. They, you know, government's got almost no control over the U.S. oil sector. And this isn't like OPEC, right? So, you know, we don't have a state-owned oil company that, that takes orders from the government and will cut production when you tell it to. Um, and companies here in the U.S. are actually banned by law from colluding. You know, there's antitrust laws that pre- prevent any kind of company from doing this, you know, oil or, or, or otherwise, from colluding to try and, and, and influence prices. So OPEC was losing its market power. Um, you know, this shale monster was growing and growing and OPEC didn't really have an answer. And, you know, you had shale basically un- undercutting OPEC no matter what it did. You know, if OPEC would cut, you know, shale would ramp up and uh, dampen that price increase that OPEC was chasing. And then if OPEC, you know, tried to punish, you know, the, the market by uh, punish producers, you know, with a big uh, uh, price war and flooding the market with uh, with extra production, you know, it did this you know, 2014, 2015, you know, shale cuts would, would basically just stop invest, shales would, you know, investors would stop investing, those, those oils wells would decline naturally, and then the price wouldn't drop as far. And, you know, so the shale sector was just kind of slippery. It was difficult for OPEC to cope with. They didn't react like a normal producer, and it was making OPEC a lot less effective. And then, you know, you had U.S. sanctions on Venezuela and on Iran at this time, just making it worse. And the Saudis found themselves kind of alone and they needed another big producer to try and regain their influence over the market. You know, their market power seemed to be evaporating. Uh, And so Russia was the obvious choice, right? Here's the, you know, the world number two producer and exporter. Um, By 2016, you know, after various discussions and overtures, Russia began cooperating with uh, Saudi Arabia and OPEC and brought in a couple of other allies. You know, Kazakhstan's probably the most important one. And you had this formation of OPEC Plus brought to you by U.S. shale. Uh, You know, one of the big downsides of shale is this um, Russia-Saudi cooperation that, you know, we're finding it surprisingly strong. Both sides seem to be determined to keep this, um, this you know, oil production alliance uh, uh, going. Any uh, rough patches, Jim? Um, you know, they had a rough patch, really only one since 2016 that we, that we were able to find. Uh, in 2020, they had this price war that just lasted for about a month during the, um, the COVID crash in oil demand. You, know, you had the Saudis cranking up oil production to, you know, 12.4 million barrels a day. And the oil price actually went negative. Uh, here in the U.S. for for one day, it was kind of crazy, and you had President Trump uh, at the time calling both sides and seeming to bring them to their senses. But you know, Saudi Russia cooperation has been been going strong uh, ever since. I mean, you know, even even through the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, surprisingly. Well, well, um, well let me let me ask you this then, then Jim, you speak about the the strength of that cooperation, but that. October production cut, 2 million barrels per day. Uh, you and your co-authors, Christian kutz and Mark Finley, described that as extraordinary. How extraordinary was the cut? And to what extent should we read it as the Saudis playing oil politics with the U.S. midterms? I'd say that cut was really extraordinary, right? I've never 
seen Saudi Arabia pushing OPEC to make a cut at a time when, you know, the incumbent U.S. president's party really didn't want it to and wanted instead wanted a production increase, right? So, so making a cut in contravention to what the incumbent U.S. president's party wanted or needed ahead of an election, right? I mean, we've seen the Saudis do the opposite. They've, they've definitely tried to help the incumbent president's party by increasing production, you know, swinging production up ahead of elections. They did it for Trump in the 2018 midterms. You know, there's an advisor at the Saudi oil ministry, Ibrahim al-Muhanna, who just wrote a really interesting book. You know, he, he says that, that the oil ministry did it for Obama's uh, re-election in 2012. His book is all about Saudi oil policy and reading it is just a, it's, it's a basic, you know, basically a masterclass in how different Saudi Arabia used to behave uh, in oil markets, you know, in comparison to what it does today. So the, you know, the Saudis, of course, know that, you know, a U.S. president's popularity is correlated with the U.S. gasoline price. There's this kind of fiction here in the U.S. that somehow the U.S. president controls U.S. gasoline prices when in reality, you know, he has very, very little influence over uh, gasoline prices. It's, it's really the Saudis that have, have that influence. Uh, and they can raise production and essentially take gasoline prices off the table at, at election time. And they did that, right? But that, you know, the last time they did it for a Democrat, uh, you know, uh, a Democratic president, that was under King Abdullah. And now we've got King Salman. And it appears that, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is not going to automatically help out uh, the U.S. president, the incumbent U.S. president at election time. So not only that, not only will it may not, you know, may, may not Saudi Arabia help, but it may actually put gasoline prices purposefully back on the table as a political issue to hurt an incumbent it doesn't like, right? And that seems to be what happened this time around. Yeah, well, that's interesting, isn't it? You say that that is a shift and, and one thinks that the Saudis, you know, are going to pretty well stick with that now that they can they don't have to play a game where the u.s says come on do something about the the uh, production and uh, put some more in the market so we can uh, get our gas uh, price of the, the pumps down but i'm just i'm just wondering jim that you know these these strains now between the u.s and and the gulf hydrocarbons producers uh, you know they have just studiously avoided observing U.S. sanctions against Russia in the Ukraine war. And, and of course, that goes back. I mean, as you pointed out in the paper, it goes back as far as 2014 and Putin's seizure of Crimea. But but how, what kind of impact does that have on on the market? Because you've got, you know, the Saudis are playing a different game now. You know, OPEC and, and Saudi Arabia especially, you know, in Riyadh, very much values the oil market cooperation that they're getting from from Russia. You know, the cartel has gotten a lot more disciplined um, with Russia on board, you know, and with the new minister, the Saudi minister, uh, Prince Abdulaziz, we're seeing less cheating, right? We're seeing a lot of overcompliance, actually, with the with cuts. Uh, and we're even, you know, you know sort of as, co- as COVID was, uh, was, was looming in the early, uh, you know, months of that, we even saw some punishment, uh, OPEC punishing quota cheaters by giving, you know, taking away, uh, uh, you know, their quotas later on if they they didn't meet them. 
So OPEC's bigger, um, and you'd think that would make it more disorganized, but somehow it's not. It's more organized. It's more. It's it's, it's stronger. It's you know the, the it's got impressive results under the Saudi Russia dual leadership. So you know Saudis don't want to lose that. They're enjoying this uh, Russian cooperation, and now with the invasion of Ukraine, you know OPEC is even more useful for Putin, right? So I think. You know, the Saudis had more to gain before the war, but now Putin also is, is really gaining from this. It's probably his best venue for geopolitical influence. You know, it's his biggest stage these days. Um, and he seems to revel in the fact that he's managed to kind of shoehorn himself into this tight U.S.-Saudi relationship. And the Saudis won't jettison him from it, right? <laughs> Despite U.S. pressure, right? Far from it. They're, they're, you know, they're even making a point of holding diplomatic visits and taking Putin's phone calls. And, you know, they made a show of rejecting Biden's uh, phone calls last year. So, you know, some of this is probably aimed at making a point, demonstrating to Washington that there's some consequences from for spurning, as they see it, their Gulf Arab partners. You know, there's a lot of disagreements, of course, going back at least to the Arab Spring or, or beyond. I mean, the Saudis the UAE as well, and, you know, some of the other Gulf monarchies, they have this sense that the U.S. is disengaging from the region. Saudis and the Emiratis feel that, that the U.S. is giving them insufficient help with the, with the Houthi, you know, and the, who, which are able to hit uh, targets with missiles and drones inside those countries. Um, you know, they want some more air defense support, at least, um, with that. And, you know, the U.S. side, sort of like, you know, the, you guys didn't have to invade Yemen. This is kind of a problem of your own making by starting this unnecessary and unnecessarily brutal war. Those disagreements were kind of bolstered by U.S. shale. The, the, you know, shale, the thinking was here in the U.S., probably until recently, we've gotten a bit of dose of reality here, but but that, we you know, hey, we're, we're oil self-sufficient now. That should give us a, a free pass on having to, to, to cater to, uh, you know, our Middle East allies, uh, you know, to some of their demands. You know, we, we can we should be able to enjoy a more independent foreign policy because we're not really importing any oil from them anymore. Well, as it turned out, you know, Shale didn't really do that. We found out that, you know, the U.S. motorist is just as exposed to global oil prices as, as, as they ever were. You know, the prices are formed there in the Gulf. Uh, and it's the big exporters, you know, and how much they decide to produce or not that are the real players in the oil game. And, you know, we take our prices from them. And th yeah, that's interesting. They, it's the Saudis and, 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 and those big uh, oil producers that, that play the game or, or set, set the terms. And the, the Russians have dovetailed, Putin has dovetailed very nicely into that, into that situation. But can you talk to me about another mechanism that the Saudis are using, spare production capacity? What is it? And how are they using it for geopolitical leverage? Spare capacity is the gap between how much a country produces and how much it could produce if it were going flat out and, and you know, sort of opening all the taps. And spare capacity is really what makes Saudi Arabia special. Right. It kind of gives them that swagger on the geopolitical stage. You know, they bring spare capacity on stream when markets are being roiled by some big event. Right. It could be a hurricane or a natural disaster. But usually it's a political 
upheaval of some sort, right? So an invasion or an embargo. And usually the Saudis leverage their spare capacity in concert with the U.S., right? At least that's how it used to go. You know, we want to invade Iraq or slap some sanctions on Iran. And we ask the Saudis to swing some extra oil to the market. You know, so in my teaching here at, at Rice University, I used to say in class that, you know, the Saudis protect the U.S. motorist from U.S. foreign policy. But, um, you know, after this October, well, that might not be true anymore. We've got some you know, sort of different behavior. You know, once Biden was elected, you know, he was campaigning on making the Saudis a pariah. Well, that Saudi spare capacity was less available, seemingly, uh, to us, right? We had the, you know, really fast post-COVID recovery in oil demand. You know, we had this big oil price shock. Uh, and we had OPEC Plus, you know, basically saying, no, nah, we're just going to stick to our plan to uh, return oil to markets and, you know, kind of drip feeding it by 400,000 barrels a day a month increases. So these monthly increases steadily, 400,000 barrels a day every month. So you had oil prices running all the way up to $130 a barrel and still no change. You know, Saudi was not bringing on its spare capacity. You had Biden asking him, you had Macron, you had Boris Johnson, no go. Saudis had their spare capacity, but they just refused to use it. You know, they said the market was well supplied and that the, the, the price spikes were due to geopolitical risks or, you know, underinvestment by producers being, uh, you know, afraid of climate action or some kind of a boomeranging pandemic. Uh, so they held that spare capacity in, in abeyance. And here in the U.S., you know, President Biden, dealing with high oil prices in election year, turned to emergency stocks, you know, the, the strategic petroleum reserves. And that's not how it's supposed to work. Usually it's the other way around. We have, you know, Saudi brings on some spare capacity first. And then really, if things get bad, then we, we, we open up the emergency stocks. You know, Biden even went to Saudi Arabia and, of course, you know, failed to get any, any help. So paper we wrote on this basically suggests that uh, most of this refusal to bring spare capacity on was, politi- was due to political factors. You know, the Saudis and others... Mentioned some oil market factors, but we um, we we were skeptical of that. Mm, yeah, and of course the famous the famous fist bump. But the Russia Saudi hookup, uh, which is working as you say very effectively, it's not all clear sailing, uh, as you point out in the paper. They're they're both competing for the Asia market, and uh, with Europe and North America beginning to turn toward green alternatives, how competitive could that be? And who do you think has the edge? So it's true, right? So, so Saudi and Russia are cooperating very well now, but they've got a couple of issues that could get in the way of that, right? So first of all, you know, the Saudis and, you know, the other Gulf monarchies have worked really hard to, to capture market share in East Asia. You know, they see China, uh, India, and, you know, Indonesia, Vietnam, you know, some of these other... ASEAN countries as uh, the, that's the big growth market for oil now and in coming decades. And they want to make sure they capture that because, you know, they see oil demand declining in most of the OECD countries, you know, especially Europe and, and North America. And uh, as oil demand plateaus and, and starts to decline, 
you know, they want to be where, where the growth still is. Uh, so they've been buying up refining capacity in those countries and configuring it for their own crudes and, and you know, even building storage in some of these places. Uh, so here comes Russia now after the invasion. Russia's kicked out of Europe, uh, and it's been very deftly rerouting its crude uh, flows out of away from Europe into East Asia and South Asia. And those, those cargoes are being snapped up at a discount by uh, refiners in India, China, well, and Turkey to some extent. And so they're basically taking, you know, this taking market share from from their their, their new buddies in uh, in the Gulf. And so far, the Saudis and the Emiratis are surprisingly quiet about this. We're not hearing a peep of complaint, but uh, I suspect that's probably a temporary thing. And there's one other big aspect uh, uh, for that that could cause some friction, I think, and that's the the uh, increasing friendship between Russia and Iran. Um, you know, Russia and Iran are cooperating now. Ra- Iran's been helping uh, Russia with its invasion, you know, supplying it with these drones. And uh, that strengthening relationship is, um, I'm sure, uh, causing some, uh, you know, some heartburn in, in Riyadh. And that, um, you know, we may hear something about that at some point, too. Well, look, uh Saudi Aramco, it's the largest energy company in the world. Is it right to say it's run pretty much at the behest of Mohammed bin Salman? I ask that because it's very clear that Mohammed bin Salman doesn't get on with Joe Biden and the Democrats. He won't be very happy with the outcome, I'm sure, of the midterms. What is his role in this in this game? Well, so Saudi Aramco, I don't know. I don't think it's correct to say that the um, you know the Saudi National Oil Company is run at the behest of the ruler. Um, you know, it's really a very sophisticated, capable oil company, best in class among state-owned oil companies. You know, with the you know, I mean, I guess if you if you if you consider Equinor in Norway state-owned, it's partially state-owned. You know, maybe maybe Equinor is a bit more sophisticated, but. But among the sort of traditional state-owned oil companies, really Aramco is, um, is is top of the list. You know, it's just got you know world-class analysis, modeling, engineering. Um, it understands the complexity of the global oil market probably better than anybody. And you know, the Saudi leadership, including Mohammed bin Salman, understands this and really does not meddle in the co- uh, you know in the company's business. You know, we've always heard that. Aramco was, you know, one of just a very few institutions in the kingdom that's ring-fenced from politicization, right? I mean, it doesn't make patronage hires, you know, like other parts of the Saudi bureaucracy that basically will, you know, some of them are, are described as warehousing for patronage jobs, right? But, you know, Aramco doesn't do that. They hire best candidates. You meet their their engineers. They're typically from Stanford or MIT or you know, one or two local schools. But, um, you know, half of Aramco's profit goes to the government, and that's the government's, uh, the Saudi state's main funding source. So uh, they're smart to be cautious with it. You know, that said, Mohammed bin Salman's the de facto head of state, um, you know, really the day-to-day ruler. And, you know, Aramco always says it takes its guidance from the government, you know, usually through the oil ministry, and Aramco employees will just tell you this over and over. I mean, in fact, you know, I was on a on a call with an uh, uh, with an Aramco guy 
yesterday. And, uh, you know, I asked him a question and he told me this. So, you know, Aramco also does not set Saudi export strategy. They don't really control decisions when about when to leverage spare capacity and when to not to, you know, because that's a geopolitical tool. So that decision really is made at the highest levels, you know, with the oil minister being involved in those. Okay, then finally, Jim, I want to ask you about big oil in the Gulf, massive profits this year, but post COP27, how's their green agenda looking? I know the Saudi Aramco and Adnoc are you know, doing a lot in that field, but but how is it looking to you? Well, yeah, I mean, massive profits, right? We so so Aramco was was closing in on on a billion dollars a day this spring. Unimaginable profits. I mean, it's just uh, really big profits. That's come down a bit, but still, the the bounce back from COVID has been uh, substantial. It's been impressive. So their green agendas. You know, I'm always cautious about the big state-owned oil companies. Green agendas at this point, is, it's, it's mostly talk. There's not a lot of investment uh, going into it. Wood McKenzie put out a report recently examining companies, oil companies around the world, and ranking them by their, the amount of, um, of capital investment that was going into non-oil diversification, especially, you know, into... Um, alternate, you know, sources of energy or, you know, to electrification or vehicle charging or, you know, wind, solar, et cetera. And really the the state-owned oil companies, including Saudi Aramco and Adnoc, were just, didn't even make the list. I mean, their their, um, spending was so, so low. Um, They really weren't, weren't doing anything. Other than, yeah, I mean, they they definitely talk about it. So, I mean, you'll hear them talk about you know, they want to get into hydrogen, you know, zero carbon hydrogen uh, as a fuel. There's some small investments in carbon capture and storage. You know, they're not really having much of a dent in those countries, um, really large emissions. And yeah, n- not not much. I mean, they've, you know, they've been put, if actually, the story this year has more been about these companies and their governments pushing back against the green agenda. You know, you're getting... Um, prominent oil ministers blaming the green agenda for underinvestment in oil and causing, you know, they're, they're sort of pointing to climate action as being premature, pushing up oil prices and discouraging upstream investment, making life harder and, you know, pushing inflation in, in importing countries, et cetera. You know, there may be, you know, a small grain of truth there. Uh, mostly, I, I, I tend to disagree with that. I mean, you know the and actually the International Energy Agency, you know their new World Energy Outlook is, is has basically said the opposite. It said you know the countries that are managing to um, reduce their exposure to higher oil prices are the ones that have gone the farthest in climate action and have you know installed renewables and have um, you know are are uh, moving towards electric vehicles the quickest. I mean if you want to reduce your exposure to oil market volatility. As an individual, the best thing you can do is buy an electric vehicle. And that way, when Saudi Arabia and Russia make waves in the oil market, you are not exposed to that at all. Uh, You can ignore that. Those geopolitics that are bedeviling everybody else don't affect you. So the more you see this, the more that'll happen. Yeah, just plug in rather than going down to the, uh, the petrol shop or the gas pump. 
Jim, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure, Bill. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Jim Crane, an energy research fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute in Houston, Texas. We welcome your comments. It's been a little more than two years since we launched, and in that time, the podcasts have been listened to more than 100,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon Music. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, analysts like Jim. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. If you are a student or academic, check if your university library has an Arab Digest subscription. If so, you can access the Digest for free. And if not, ask your library to consider getting one. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.